Hi, I'm the person whose closet is put in color order, but I'll also pick up an earthworm without thinking twice. In fact, I did yesterday. <laughs> it needed my help. I'm not afraid to be a little messy. Human nature is messy, but nature nature can help us embrace it. I love the brand seventh generation. Their laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with the power of bioenzymes. That's exciting. You wipe your hands on your pants after you pick up an earthworm. Seventh generation is like, don't worry, hug a dirty tree, huff some bark. It's good for you. That is the power of seventh generation. Find laundry detergent and other laundry products at seventhgeneration.com. I love worms. So I have four nieces and nephews, and I was talking to my sister about IXL. And IXL Learning is this fun online program for kids, and it covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. My sister and my nephew love it. The way it works is it's powered by AI, so IXL gives the right help to each kid. And IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Maybe you've been looking into private tutoring, but it's out of the budget, or this is a big school year for your kiddo. So make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And all of these listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash ologies. So visit IXL.com slash ologies to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Oh, hey, it's that friend who started their term paper the night before it was due. Allie Ward with a last minute, too ambitious, extra credit episode of ologies. What am I doing? Why did I decide on a Sunday to make an episode with five different ologists to air one day later? Am I okay? Not really. But also, yes, we're going to be okay, probably. That's why we made this episode. We just damn needed it. But first, I need to say thank you to patrons at patreon.com slash ologies that costs a dollar a month to join that club. Also, thanks if you have ever left a review for the show. I have read it with my teary, oftentimes bleary eyes, and I pick a glistening, just burst one each week as proof, such as this one from Eileen, who said, Dear Allie Dad, thanks for accompanying me on my road trip from Seattle to California and back and for making me guffaw until I cry and also reflect on what makes me feel horny about life. Your kid, Eileen. Eileen, happy to horn you up about snails and condors and mud as your oddly paternal internet friend. That's what I'm here for. Okay. Quarantinology. It's a word. Not shockingly, it has gained popularity in the last like 16 months. So today is June 14th, 2021. I live in California. On June 15th, in a few hours, the mask mandates are lifted. So what does this mean? What can we expect? What's going on? How safe are we? Is the pandemic over? That's not what the news says. Can I play croquet with my college roommates on a lawn? Can I hug my uncle? Will I ever eat pudding from the same spoon as a stranger again? I hope not. But I'm here. I'm here to help. I'm going to do that by letting people smarter than me talk to you with their mouths. So in this episode, we're going to talk to married history buffs, researchers, and authors, Jeff Mano and Nicola Twilly, who you also know as the host of the incredible podcast, Gastropod. And these two are releasing a new book. It's called Until Proven Safe, The History and Future of Quarantine, which Side note, Mary Roach calls flawlessly executed life goals to have Mary Roach say that about you. <gasps> anyway, their book, Until Proven Safe, is available for pre-order. It'll be delivered in July. It's all about why human beings quarantine. Fascinating. There's a link in the show notes. So I sat down and talked to them. They dish on the history of quarantines, 
why they are and sometimes are not fully effective, the cultural shifts that happen in the wake of a pandemic, and more. And also, I I just had an incredible chat with them. I had to pare down a lot of this, and I will release the full version to patrons because it deserves to be heard. After the break, we'll check in with your favorite vaccine infodemiologist, Jessica Milati Rivera, plus Manhattan-based physician Mike Natter, who worked on the front lines amid New York City's surging 2020 caseload. And then finally, we're going to check in with thanatologist, grief counselor, and founder of the School of American Thanatology, Cole Imperi, who will address why you feel so fucking weird and how to process it and move forward and honor the incredibly jacked year that everyone just had. So I'm an absolute maniac for shelving my in-process WASPs episode and texting experts from my orthodontist chair this afternoon and asking them to send some thoughts via voice memo and then trying to put this all together over a 7 p.m. espresso. But I could not be more passionate and committed to getting you all the ologists that you need when you need them. So get ready to hear about COVID versus plague quarantines, medieval cities, forbidden scarves, sneaky sailors, moon cooties, the efficacy of vaccines, variants, herd immunity, Vax Girl Summers, the headspace of healthcare workers right now, and no matter where you are or what you've been through, how to reflect and process and honor the last year. So let's all take a deep breath. Be thankful for that breath as we examine the history, the present, and the future of quarantinology. I am Jeff Mayno, and uh, my pronouns are he, him. We actually both have quite difficult names to pronounce, um, <laughs> so it's good. And I am Nicola Twilly, although I go by Nikki, and uh, and I am she, her. Can you tell me a little bit about what you were doing when you decided, let's write a book about quarantine? <laughs> well, yeah, I can say that the origins of the project itself actually started, uh, or it came quite a while back uh, in 2009. Um, we were down in Australia together. Uh, I had a teaching gig in Sydney doing a kind of architecture workshop for about six weeks. And at one point, um, we had a local friend who took us out on a picnic. And we noticed that there was this really interesting complex of buildings out near where we had gone, which was a pretty remote peninsula on the other side of the bay from Sydney itself. And, you know, these these buildings, you know, they were on stilts. They had really nice kind of um, wraparound porches. And it was called Q Station. And what it, what it actually was, was an old quarantine station that had been turned into a kind of spa hotel. Oh my and God. The oh. cool aspect of that, I thought, was that, you know, the, the very things that made quarantine at one point, uh, or sites like that, so good for quarantine, which is that they're far away from the city. You know, they give everybody fresh air. Um, they don't risk, you know, people just kind of wandering into town. You know, they're separated by a bay. They're also out on a peninsula. So they're even separated from the, the, the land that they're connected to. Um, those same things that made it good for quarantine um, made it good for a spa hotel, you know, a way to uh-huh. get away from the world <laughs> and to get away from Sydney. Um, and so I think, you know, really ironically, uh, the, the initial interest in the topic was was actually kind of, um, in retrospect, was actually, you know, a little um, 
embarrassing in the sense that we were like, you know, what was quarantine? You know, why did why did we stop quarantining people? Why are facilities like this no longer being used for medical reasons? And now they can be turned into hotels, you know, or they can be torn down entirely, mm -hmm. or they're just left in ruins. Because, you know, when you look around that quarantine, you tend to see that it really does look like a frag, a figment of, or like a, you know, a leftover uh, business from the past. And, you know, mm -hmm. we realized almost immediately, as soon as we started looking into quarantine, that in reality, you know, it still is obviously taking place at, 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 at scales all around us. It's taking place with, you know, with animals traveling overseas. It's happening in agriculture. And that was really what I think gave us the idea to pursue it as a research project. And then the idea of writing a book together, I'd say, came later. Yeah, I think we both realized there was just something in there for both of us. I mean, I write a lot about food and agriculture. I have a podcast about that. And so the fact that quarantine is so important in terms of food and agriculture appealed to me. And then I write a lot about science and, the, and we realized, oh, quarantine is used in, um, you know, NASA are sort of experts on, on quarantine because it's constantly being used in terms of space exploration. And then we, you know, the, just the more we dug, the more there was there and it rapidly expanded into a book. Mm. How far back did you go when you thought, mm, quarantine, let's look into the history well, I think that's where we we started. And it, you know, as a concept, I mean, I think one of the things that's about quarantine that's so interesting is it seems really intuitive. Um, you have this, you know, person or thing that you think potentially might be infected with a disease you don't know yet, but you're worried mm -hmm. and you have reason to be worried. And so you uh, decide to kind of put them somewhere safe until you could be sure that they're either healthy or they're sick. And that just seems like, oh, that's such an obvious thing to do. Why wouldn't that have happened for all of human history? But of course not, it actually had to be invented. You know, if you think that disease is, a, is an act of God, for example, then you're not going to think that putting someone in a separate room is gonna do anything because you don't have a concept of infection. Mm. So it did have to be invented and as soon as we sort of thought that through, we, you know, we wanted to know where it began. Yeah, where did it begin? Well, historically, it began in the Adriatic Sea, which is interesting because the Adriatic is really kind of the first sea that you would encounter as you're leaving um, the Near East, you know, what is now the Middle East and, and approaching Europe. So as merchants were bringing goods back from uh, you know, uh, from Turkey, from, you know, what was once known as the Levant and, and bringing those into the, uh, the European economy. Um, you know, it was, the, it was the Adriatic where people realized that they were encountering, you know, mysterious diseases that they hadn't had before and that those diseases appeared to be breaking out at the same time as these ships were arriving. Ah. And so as, as Nikki was describing, there was kind of some just deductive reasoning, which was that, okay, let's take the next ship that arrives from the same uh, this, this, the same, uh, you know, port of, uh, destination or, you know, whatever you want to call it, that, that would come to, uh, a city like Dubrovnik or a city like Venice. And let's just hold it. Let's, let's delay it. Let's, uh, you know, put it, put a buffer around it and see if the disease still arrives. And it was that kind of deductive reasoning that I think led to the spatial logic and even the temporal logic of quarantine. And so, you know, there's some debate amongst historians about whether or not Dubrovnik or Venice is really first in line as far as the invention of quarantine. What is a Dubrovnik? Well, I had to ask the internet and Wikipedia was like, it's historically known as Ragusa, you shit for brains. And I'm like, listen, Google, how was I supposed to know that this historical Croatian seaport with a history dating back to the 17th century is known for its global position in the maritime trade? 
and for its medieval architecture and beautiful stone buildings with russet terracotta roof tiles perched on cliffs above the azure Adriatic waters. How was I supposed to know that? But now I know what a Dubrovnik is, as well as a Ragusa. But I think that from what we've seen and the historians we've discussed and the actual archival evidence, it really does look like Dubrovnik was the first place where a quarantine order was officially given in the 14th century. And it was about uh, delaying the arrival of ships and, 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 and fumigating goods and keeping the sailors and the merchants themselves out of Dubrovnik so that they couldn't infect the people who live there. And it's really the timing is because this is when the Black Death arrived in Europe for the first time. Mm. So before that, Europe, um, historians think, had been sort of for centuries relatively free of new infectious diseases. And then the Black Death gets started. A lot of mysteries still about where that started and how it spread, but historians think it started in China and spread uh, toward Europe that way. Mm-hmm. And by the 1340s, it had arrived in you know some of these trading ports that were doing business with the East. Dubrovnik at the time was a huge trading port. It was one of the first places you'd stop on the way into Europe with your you know ship full of valuable goods. And, and, you know, the people who lived in Dubrovnik at the time, they wanted to have their cake and eat it. They didn't want to stop trade because that's how they made their money, but they didn't want to die of the plague. And so, you know, quarantine was this sort of attempt to say, well, we just park you here initially on, a, on an island offshore and later in purpose-built facilities. We wait and see. And then if you're not sick, cool, we can still do trade and make money. And if you are sick, well, we kept out the plague. Mm. How long was their quarantine? How long did you have to wait and see if the Black Death would consume a ship full of people before you could say like, okay, we're cool, like bring on the grains? 30 days at first in Dubrovnik, but they quickly switched it to 40. And that was not for um, the kind of reasons we decide a quarantine length today. So nowadays, the quarantine length is exactly as long as we need to know, you know, according to how long the disease takes to be able to be diagnosed or show symptoms. Back then, you know, there was much less of it. There wasn't a germ theory of disease or anything. And so 40 was chosen because of its religious significance. So Really? Yeah, it was sort of, I mean, you know, 40 days and nights of rain, um, the 40 days uh, of Lent before Christ's ascension and so on. Uh, it's it's a period that was sort of seen as kind of uh, a period of purification or transformation. In Hebrew, thought it's sort of the length of a generation. So it had this sort of symbolic sense that you would you would know for sure at the end of that period. Aha. And then what about pre-ship migrations? Are period huts a type of quarantine? Well, that's a really good question. Throughout the research of this, people are like, what about leper colonies? Uh, you might be the first person, Ellie, to ask us about period huts. So Hello. good job, you. But um, <laughs> typhoid Mary, people say, oh, was that quarantine? No. If you know the person is diseased or just, you know, having their period, then you mm-hmm. know there is no uncertainty. You're not waiting to find out. And so what that is, is isolation. Quarantine has to, and this is what makes quarantine so so interesting and so easily abused as well, is that you have to not know. There just has to be doubt and suspicion and uncertainty and fear. Oh, got it. Okay. And I think that quarantine is so metaphorically powerful precisely because 
you know, the idea is that there, there might be something inside you that is dangerous to others, but we don't know yet. You don't even know yet. Mm -hmm. And so you need the space and time that quarantine gives in order to see if this thing will come out. Um, you know, it becomes mythological. Um, it even sounds like the plot of a horror movie. You know, think about like John Carpenter's The Thing, where there's people hanging, hanging mm -hmm. out at an Antarctic base waiting to see if there's something hidden in them. <laughs> And, you know, I think that right. quarantine really has that exciting aspect to it that is, uh, that lends it that, that sort of poetic, religious, or mythological note that, that Nikki was talking about and also just made it so exciting to explore as a topic. So Greg and Nikki make the excellent point that isolation connotes a confirmed case, but quarantine is really more of a shrug. Let's hope this wasn't necessary. Thanks for doing it anyway. So as someone who tends to think more is more when it comes to effort, it can be hard to understand just how important doing less has been for the greater good of humanity and has been for centuries. And then any idea going through old notes or letters or manuscripts, what were people doing while they were quarantined in the past before there was like Angry Birds and Twitter. Yeah, I mean, that's funny. That's that's such a good question. You'd see sailors maybe who would come on a very long journey through the Mediterranean or for that matter, um, you know, all the way around the world or across the Atlantic or even the Pacific. But now they're not able to get off the ship. You know, they're being held in quarantine there. They can actually see the land. They can see the city that they've that they've sailed to. Um, but they just have to sit on deck for 40 days, you know, just waiting to see if something happens to one of the crew members or if one of them has this disease. And so boredom is a very, very prominent note that you see throughout throughout history. Eventually, this led to some things where, um, you know, richer, uh, like the, the captains of the ships themselves um, who could afford it or who were simply treated better um, were able to stay in larger uh, quarantine facilities, maybe even get off the ship and come into land and stay in one of these lazarettos or like that quarantine station that I mentioned in Sydney. Um, and if you mm -hmm. can afford it, or if you're just simply treated better, maybe because of race, maybe because of gender, you know, you're given more resources to get you through the period of quarantine. And so that was definitely something that we've looked at, because that's yet another way in which quarantine can become, you know, unequally distributed, so to speak. Uh, just very briefly, you know, another thing we found too was quarantine erotica, uh, you know, people actually getting... <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'm so sorry. I never thought those two <laughs> words would be mushed together in just a sloppy, sexy moon pie. <laughs> you're like, what? But you know, you're trapped in this building with strangers. You know, you're uh, you're 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 forbidden maybe to be near them or to touch them. You know, and all of that is just mm -hmm. leading up to a kind of er erotic frisson that 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 turns into to stories. And you know, you see that in the sort of golden age of quarantine literature, and the really in the in the 1800s, I guess you could say. But even during COVID-19, you know, there was the rise of of uh, online erotica for people who were, you know, fantasizing about being trapped in an airport hotel with other people on the same flights. And, you know, mm -hmm. next thing you know, they're bumping into each other in, in more ways than one. <laughs> okay, wait, but go back. There was a golden age of quarantine erotica? No oh, one yeah. told me about this. I know. it's a, And I studied English literature for my undergrad, and we did not focus on this, and I feel shortchanged, frankly. <laughs> um, but yeah, in the 1800s, there was sort of this uh, kind of mass, um, they were these kind of pulpy, syrupy sort of short stories and novellas. One of them's called Love in the Lazarette. Um, it was sort of a, you know, this kind of... Uh, tinge of the exotic because you were traveling overseas and you didn't know who was who, were they sick, were they not. Then you're bored, you have all this time on your hand, you're mingling with others. Yes, of course I looked this up and I had my eyes opened quite wide to titles like Love in Lockdown and Quarantine 
step-sibling love in the time of the coronavirus, a story of taboo romance, as well as the novel COVID-69, an erotic coronavirus quarantine story. And though I haven't read the last one, let's hope that COVID-69 isn't a futuristic romp set in the 2069 COVID resurgence. Let's hope it's just about good old pandemic knobslobbing. And did you have to study any baby booms that happened after quarantines? Or do we find a dip because people are isolated and too scared and depressed to get it on? Excellent question. What they're predicting after uh, COVID-19 is a dip. Um, We did not study this historically. I mean, historically, you have to remember as well, like during the Black Death, you know, a, a third to half of the people in your town might have died. So it was altogether a next level um, disease. And I think you might frantically try to reproduce after that, uh, mm. but but not maybe during. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay, so maybe you're not emerging from a cocoon of immunity with a fresh development deal or a new human being. You still did a good, I think. And how much do they find that quarantine does save lives? Obviously, if I had to guess scientifically, I would guess a shitload. But did you have to look at any historical data from past or more recent quarantines? This is a really good question. And actually, when the the guy at the CDC, who is the head of the Division of Global Migration and Quarantine, started out in the job, he actually wondered exactly the same thing. Like, do we actually know that quarantine works, like for sure, scientifically? Mm-hmm. Um, and so he studied the 1918 flu specifically. It's hard to study older quarantines because the records just don't exist to get you that kind of that level of um, sort of quantitative accuracy that you'd be looking for. Mm-hmm. But for the 1918 flu, he was able to see that actually, yes, quarantine, even when it's leaky, and it is always a little bit leaky, uh, the cities that did best were the ones that quarantined earliest and longest. And you could just see that again and again in the evidence. And so, yes, the answer is yes, they seem unfair. They often are unfair. They're almost always leaky, um, and yet they save lives. I wonder, like, when do you think they'll get data on this recent pandemic? Side note, I mean, that that's are those numbers they're going to be crunching for decades, do you think? Oh, you're starting to see it already. You're starting to see um, almost daily papers coming out that say, actually, travel bans help save lives, or places that enforce lockdowns earlier save lives, or... Um, school closings save lives. They're even doing the analysis and showing that actually it wasn't as economically damaging as everyone um, warned. And in fact, sort of in the long run, will have saved more money um, by saving lives than cost. So mm. already that evidence is coming coming out. I think, you know, it's, it's a place-by-place thing because quarantine was a patchwork always. But um you can find that data already. Just a quick aside, there was a recent article in The Guardian titled, The World's Economic Recovery from COVID-19 Looks Likely to be Uneven. That was the title. There you go. And the author, Noriel Rubini, essentially goes on to detail that, quote, in the U.S., a decline in new infections, high vaccine rates, increased consumer and business confidence, and the far-reaching effects of fiscal and monetary expansion will drive a robust recovery this year. But 
also continues to say that the outlook is more fragile for many emerging and developing economies where high population density, weaker healthcare systems, and lower vaccination rates will continue to allow the virus to spread, end quote. Also noting that incomes from tourism dried up in some countries. But one thing is certain, people are taking notes. Yeah, and I, th- I think as well, you know, with as we saw with the flu of, of 1918, I mean, the, the data is going to be mined for, I mean, decades to come. I mean, I think people will still be writing papers and, and crunching the numbers on COVID-19, you know, easily, you know, there'll be grad students writing theses about this, you know, in 2050, <sighs> trying to figure out what, what did and what did not work. Um, but, you know, it, mm-hmm. it is really difficult, I think, though, to quantify exactly, you know, if we're talking about lives saved in the sense that you know, getting numbers on things that didn't happen is is a bit tough. And I think that on that level, what's so, uh, frankly, I think kind of cool about quarantine, although uh, you know, I, 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 I hesitate to hear myself calling quarantine cool, but in any case, um, <laughs> is just that it's so simple. You know, it's just like, just stay in this one space, don't interact with other people or other things. And, you know, for a certain amount of time. And after that point, if you've been proven safe, you can come out again. And then, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we can we can go from there. So it's a, it's a pretty remarkable and remarkably effective uh, tool for for what it's asking you to do, which is simply to make, be spatially separate. So quarantine is like a game of freeze tag. Maybe it seemed fun at first until holding still started to really ache. And then those aches just became a new normal as we watched a frenzy continue around us. But what about all the folks who lost jobs or took on new essential jobs that put them at the most risk? Nikki and Greg share some global perspective from their research. Marty Citron and others thinking about this are like, okay, if you're going to make that sacrifice, mm-hmm. which is a sacrifice, then and you're making it for the public good, then the public kind of owes you a duty of care and you should you know, for example, not have to worry about losing your job or mm-hmm. losing your income or feeding your family. And if you make that sacrifice, you should be insured treatment and mm-hmm. access to vaccines when we have them and so on. And it's it's like this idea that um, there's a sort of uh, bill of rights for the quarantined that I think has really been, you know, that's that's one of the things that has sort of made some of the lockdowns of COVID-19 seem so unequal. Mm-hmm. is because those rights weren't being um, thought through. People weren't being told to give something up for the public good. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things we ended up concluding is that if you, um, if you don't have a public, you can't have public health. And that quarantine really relies on that sense of being part of a community. I mean, in, in Venice, where the first quarantine hospitals were built, um, those quarantine hospitals were one of the five institutions in the city where notaries had to ask, would you like to leave money to this in your will? It was one of the public goods. Um, you know, it was one of the things that was seen as being, you know, an institution that everyone was responsible for and that was protecting everyone. Mm. And, um, and I think if you are living in a place and time where we don't have that sense that everyone is responsible and, and, and everyone is also being protected by, you know, these institutions, then it's never going to work. Mm. What about historically, when you were writing this book, obviously you did not expect a major global pandemic to happen, you know, like when you started writing the book. But I'm really curious to hear about some of the records that you had to pour through and if there were any records that really stuck in your mind or really surprised you or kind of emotionally stuck with you. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, going through our materials and then watching COVID unfold was like, it felt like deja vu every day. For example, in Dubrovnik, you know, they're first, they're the first to have passed quarantine regulations. Well, they also passed a regulation saying that only people who basically weren't essential workers could leave the city. So essential workers, you know, laundresses and grave diggers and so on, people who were in these risky jobs mm -hmm. were required to um, stay in the city and the nobility could flee. Um, mm. So you, you, you saw those kinds of, you know, details of, of grave diggers being hung for breaking quarantine regulations and nobles um, running off to the countryside to stay in a villa and tell stories, that's been there since the beginning. So those kinds of stories, uh, yeah. And then then seeing, you know, that play out during COVID, um, it was sort of like, oh gosh, have we learned nothing? And after more than a year of essential workers being literally the lowest paid sector in the nation with some pretty high risks, one University of California, San Francisco study found that of Californians, aged 18 to 65, the highest occupational death rates were among cooks. So as things open up again and you start to see help wanted signs in restaurant windows and fast food hubs, it might take on a different meaning to you. Yeah, and I think also there were just so many haunting details that came from some of the research we did. You know, one of the things we learned about was in Split, which is a city in Croatia, where uh, a, an individual who was working at the Lazaretto, um, I think he was a guard at the Lazaretto, um, noticed that in the cargo bay where they had been storing cargo taken from ships, you know, he saw a really beautiful scarf one day and he decided that he would take it home from the Lazaretto with the quarantine station and give it to his wife as a present. But the scarf had the fleas that transmit the bacterium that causes bubonic plague. And so not only did he give his wife the plague, but it led to an outbreak, you know, that then that, that, that swept through the city of Split. Another example, you know, that also um, sounds like a John Carpenter film. You know, I apologize for mentioning John Carpenter more than once in, in a, a single interview. But in any case, uh, there was a, a great story from Boston where the pilot of a ship uh, w was being held in quarantine on, a, on an island off the offshore from Boston. And when the when the water froze over, he just walked into town, um, mm. you know, and, and I mean, luckily didn't bring the plague with him, but it's those kinds of little tiny details that s feel like the beginning of a, f of a film or the beginning of like, mm -hmm. you know, this, this is how the, the outbreak starts that I think really kind of stuck, at least with me in the sense of just, just how dramatic and strange they are. You know, when Nikki and I started going into everything from, you know, high level isolation facilities in London where they work with Ebola patients to even we went underground in New Mexico to a facility where they're storing nuclear waste and it has to be buried for at least 10,000 years. You know, you begin to see that actually the Andromeda strain has a weird kind of, um, you know, fictional realism, I guess you could say that that, that was that was interesting to note. Uh, you know, even the movie Quarantine, you know, which is a horror movie that came out, I think it was 2008. Um, you know, I think mm -hmm. is also interesting just because the name of the film is just quarantine, you know, as if the word itself, like you instantly know this is a horror <laughs> movie, you know, like just, just saying that word quarantine, you know, is going to bring people to, you know, make them, make them scared. So if living through the last year and a half and witnessing the continued infection and mortality rates feels exhausting, that's because we've been living in a real life horror film. We lived through it. So cut yourself a little slack for not cleaning every closet or developing those weird vertical abs that only Ken dolls have, and also writing 
King Lear and other masterpieces. But what else is real but feels like a movie? The fact that I think I I have said the most to the most number of people <laughs> is when the the Apollo astronauts first came back to Earth, um, and the CDC had said that they would not let them back in if they did not go into quarantine because, uh, you know, no one knew there wasn't some weird germ on the moon that was going to kill us all. This you is have Rose to Google Bud. the moon. Someone, okay? I can guarantee you someone's Googling right now. The moon I is knew such it was a planet. planet. I can't the even The moon stand is it. not a planet. What else is it if it's not a planet? It is not. I believe it's a star or something. It's it is a not a moon. So, the CDC literally put the, um, you know, the lunar receiving lab um, in Texas under federal quarantine for potential extraterrestrial infection. Um, <gasps> it's the only time I think there's been a quarantine for extraterrestrial infection on Earth. <laughs> I mean, they really took it seriously. There was a plan, you know, if if the astronauts had developed some curious, inexplicable disease. There was actually a plan to just bury the entire lunar receiving lab and all the people in it wow. under, you know, concrete and dirt just to save the Earth. So they were taking this very seriously. And I think, you know, nowadays we kind of, oh, the moon's just a, a rock. And, you know, imagining that danger is sort of, oh, ha ha, weren't they silly? But, you know, we're bringing, if we're going to bring stuff back from Mars, it's the same, it's going to be the same type of precautions that we need to take. So it's a really interesting fact to be thinking about right now. And I think it kind of blows people's minds. The idea of just space critters coming in. <laughs> you don't know. Who knows what's going to be on there? Maybe the whole earth will turn to cheese. Maybe there's a weird fromage bacterium. Who knows? Um, can I ask you some listener questions from patrons? Please do. Please. Ooh, okay. All right. Here's the deal. So we're getting into a phase where a lot of restrictions, at least in North America, in the United States are lifting, but that's not global. And so a lot of listeners wanted to know, how do we know if it's time to lift isolation and quarantines in a certain region? Okay, so I think as with all things quarantine, there's always a level of uncertainty. Um, and that's mm -hmm. one of the uncomfortable things about it. But in the book, we do spend a lot of time talking to the people who figure out, you know, the, the disease modelers, the epidemiologists who try to forecast spread and come up with, you know, the appropriate response based on what they think is going to happen. And mm -hmm. so what they would say is scientifically, you know, what you're looking at is that that R number, that reproduction number, R people you know, more people passing this along. If that R number is above one, you're looking at, at spread. The higher it is, the worse spread, etc. And so you can make decisions based on that. And so they say with relative confidence that once that R number is under control and there's a certain kind of level of immunity, either through vaccination or exposure in the population, then yeah, it is safe. We do look at the limitations of modeling in our in our book. There's a there's you know we can't we're not at the point where we can predict the future accurately. All you can make is sort of guesses that are more or less educated. And so I think mm -hmm. also people should operate according to their own comfort level. That makes sense. I think that that's one of the things that you know it's so interesting with COVID is just that it really hits the sweet spot of the 
of a disease that requires quarantine because you you can be infectious even if you don't have symptoms. And so, you know, it's mm. you, you have to maintain separation from other people because you can be spreading something that you yourself don't even know you have. Right. Yeah, the other thing I'd say is this this uncertainty about am I safe, am I not? It's at the heart of quarantine and it also is just what people cannot stand and makes them anxious, mm. understandably. And they want science to provide certainty. And I think if there's one thing that is, is really interesting about this is that actually science needs to do a little bit of a better job of communicating that it's just our best working theory at this point in time. Megan Younce asked, will everything ever feel back to normal? And Lisa Taylor said, and when? I need validation. Any idea how long, based on things that happened in the past, people can, let's say with the the flu of 1918, when do people start to shrug off that kind of anxiety? That's another really great question. There, there are a couple things I'd say. One is, in some sense, people will move on really quickly. And this is actually one of the problems with quarantine because we never take the lessons that we take the time to take the lessons that we learned, implement them for next time because we're so busy celebrating being done with it. And so part of the sort of thesis of our book is like, hi, we have this amazing moment right now to make sure that really almost for the first time in history, we learn from quarantine and we get ready to do it differently next time because there will be a next time. There's just a lot of bacteria and viruses out there um, mm -hmm. and they reproduce and mutate quicker than we do. So it, that I would say is, you know, I would say we're gonna bounce back really quickly and that might actually be a bad thing if we don't take the time to learn lessons. And then the other thing I say is, even though we're going to bounce back really quickly, a lot of things will have changed and they will form the new normal. And this is something that we found, you know, the first passports, which are a thing that we just take for granted now. You can't travel without one overseas. You can't cross an, a, an international border without one. Well, that came about as a way to move around during the Black Death and skip quarantine by showing a health passport. So, Wow. These kind of bureaucratic ways of controlling movement, monitoring health, surveilling the population, they kind of get baked in as the new normal and people take them for granted. So in some ways it will never be the same. Um, and, and then in some ways it shouldn't be. I think that what has actually been really interesting and, and quite ominous, in fact, over the last two months is... Uh, that you know, at one point everybody thought India was doing really well, and that and that COVID had kind of bypassed India, and that you know everything from you know the architecture of Indian cities, you know, with everything open to the air, you know, was was not allowing COVID to build up inside homes and have people breathing it and picking it up and giving it to others. Um, but then you know now, as you as as you know, or at least you know as we record this podcast, you know, India is going through a really huge spike in COVID cases. It's mm -hmm. one of the worst countries in the world right now. And, you know, the news can really change quickly because a country that appears to be starting off maybe very badly and is very hard hit can actually get back on its feet and figure out what it did wrong and vice versa. You know, a, you know, a country that appears to be not immune, but sidestepping or avoiding all of the really negative stuff can really kind of get blindsided by a second wave or by a variant or by several variants or simply by bad politics. And so that's been pretty eye-opening. And as far as individual countries, I do think, though, that there's kind of a, a, a scientific playbook for how to deal with epidemics or respiratory illnesses. I mean, 
one of my old bosses is a professor of history uh, and she she was like well i can say this because i'm a historian but we are living in historic times mm. and i really do think we we all went through sort of a major moment in history together and and uh we should all cut each other some slack for whatever we're feeling yes good call um Thank you so much for doing this, for being on. It's been really great to process the last year with a few experts, to be honest. Well, thank yeah, you. It's such us. a treat for, for us. Let's continue to process, shall we? We shall. But first, just a quick breather, and we will hear about a few sponsors of the show who make it possible to donate to a few different charities for this episode. And first up is 500womenscientists.org, which is a nonprofit dedicated to making science open, inclusive, and accessible. They're awesome. Uh, we're also sending a donation to covid.giveindia.org, which aims to stop the virus's spread and supports vulnerable families affected by COVID-19. They support healthcare infrastructure and they boost oxygen supply and ventilators to patients in India. So we'll be sending another donation as well to the School of American Thanatology, which seeks to provide inclusive and accessible education opportunities in and adjacent to the fields of thanatology, death work, and thanobotany, while also fostering research and writing opportunities for their community. And the School of American Thanatology's autumn season starts Monday, September 7th. There's a link to them in the show notes, and those donations were made possible by sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, we're all carrying around just a backpack of stressors and sadnesses. When we keep them all zipped up and the load gets heavier, it can start to affect us negatively. You start to feel misunderstood, sad, resentful. A safe place to unpack that is, you guessed it, therapy. Therapists can help you dump out your bag and work through the heavy garbage that's weighing you down, in my case at least. I've used BetterHelp. They have definitely helped me understand that pushing my feelings down does not actually make them go away. It makes them feel worse. So if you've been thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. It's suited to your schedule. You fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's so much faster and easier than trying to hunt down a therapist from just online listings and cold calling. That's one thing I love about BetterHelp. And if for any reason you're not vibing with your therapist, you can switch anytime, no additional charge, no drama. So unburden yourself and trauma dump onto someone who's trained for this. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ologies. Oh, Kiwiko. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allie's love you. Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kids busy. KiwiCo's like, we did the legwork for you. And the Summer Adventure Series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids can build an actual bottle rocket. And you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages. Everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages 9 to 14. An entrepreneur where you can do textured clay 
escape projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. Oh, it's heating up. It's time to say bye now to your jackets and your sweaters and your tights and get reacquainted with shorts and tees, breezy things. Can I point you to the direction of Quince? What I love about Quince, you can build a lineup of timeless pieces. They keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year without spending a fortune. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts. They start at $30. They have washable silk tops. And I love that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands because they partner directly with top factories. They cut out the cost of the middleman and then they pass the savings on to you. So whether you need a sundress you can wear to a picnic or you need some good t-shirts or tanks that feel nice on your skin and are well-made, head over to Quince. I love them so much I put them on my body. That's what clothes are for. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash ologies for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies. Oh, hi, it's me, the lady that checks a bunch of scholarly articles before she believes anything. Allie Ward. And I feel like we are similar in that we have a fair amount of skepticism and we like to dive deep and find out what the actual facts are. This is why when it comes to any kind of supplements, I enjoy Ritual, which is a female-founded B Corp, meaning that they're holding themselves accountable to not just the company, but also to the health of people in our planet. And they're clinically backed essential for women at 18 plus multivitamin has these high quality, traceable key ingredients in bioavailable forms that are clean. Only about 1% of supplement brands are USP verified and Ritual is one of them. So I like being able to trust what I'm putting in my body. From an aesthetic standpoint, I'll also tell you that Ritual are beautiful little vitamins. They look like lava lamps and they taste like mint. So taking my Ritual is part of my, I guess, morning ritual. That's probably why they named it that and I didn't even think about it. Anyway, no more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. So get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash ologies. You can start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash ologies for 25% off. Down the hatch. On to a few more expert opinions, including an epidemiologist, a medical doctor, and someone who is here to calm your nerves and unscramble your brain, help you move forward. But first up, we have your favorite vaccine infodemiologist. My name is Jessica Malati Rivera. Who I texted last night at 7 p.m. and said, hello, it's me, like all caps. I love you. Can we record a mini-so tomorrow, maybe? And she made time for me this morning. I'm so grateful. She's a microbiologist who got her master's in emerging infectious diseases from Georgetown University School of Medicine. She's also an infectious disease epidemiologist with the COVID-19 Dispersed Volunteer Research Network an expert contributor for all kinds of news outlets. And you may also know her work from the Atlantic's COVID tracking project. Start recording just so that we have everything. Um, You're back. You're joining us again. Busy year, of course, for you. Yeah. How are you doing? We're in June now. A lot's changed. When we talked last time, we thought it might be fall before anyone had vaccines. That was a, a normal Joe. Yeah. Yeah, I've actually loved how wrong I was about that prediction. (laughs) (laughs) I I kind of err on the side of cautious optimism with a, Mm -hmm. you know, little sprinkle of pessimism. (laughs) 
Mm -hmm. So um, I was just delighted to see how ahead of the curve we were when it came to that timing and the fact that most, you know, adults have at least have had access to the vaccine in the United States. It just it's really remarkable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I got mine in April. Um, When were you able to get yours? I got my first dose on March 16th, 2021. And the reason why I remember that was because it was also the one year anniversary of the first person who to get dose in a trial in 2020. And I just, you know, of course, cried my eyes out over that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did you do it on purpose or just got lucky that way? It just happened that way. (laughs) It just happened that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, I feel like the US is ahead of the curve, obviously, like you said, with vaccines. What's going on with the rest of the world? And what does that mean for the way that we've seen curves rise and fall and come back? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. And I think it's important for all of us to remember that we are still very much in a pandemic. And pandemics are exactly that. They're pandemics. They are global. And this disease is kind of burning through countries and disproportionately affecting uh, communities at varying levels. And we can't kind of call any victories yet until everybody has access, equitable access to a vaccine. And I don't know if you saw today's news, was really thrilled to see that Novavax's data came out really good and COVAX has committed to securing 1.1 billion doses, which also frees up the US to donate even more doses. So we're getting there. But I mean, some of these estimates, Ali, are like 2023 for some countries to get fully vaccinated. And that's just not acceptable. Yeah. Oh, my God. Is it a supply issue? Is it a pipeline problem? Is it is it um, distribution? All of the above. Right. It's it's the fact that, you know, developing these vaccines, like actually producing them is very labor intensive and requires high skill and, you know, a skilled staff to do that, like a skilled uh, workforce. Uh, Not all the places in the world can actually have that on an infrastructure level. Um, It's, you know, it's the cold chain process too, making sure that there's enough, you know, refrigeration and sub freezing temperatures for shipment and storage. It's cost, you know, like it should not be costing people to get this vaccine, but that's because, you know, we in the United States had that majorly financed by Operation Warp Speed. Um, You know, we need things like COVAX to make sure that it is equitable and free for other people in other countries too. So COVAX, side note, is directed by Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, and the World Health Organization. And its mission is to provide equitable access to COVID-19 vaccines. So because this is very much a global humanitarian issue, and we're trying really hard to outrun this thing. So toot toot, all aboard to Vaccine Town. Get in. Now, before things get worse, he, okay, I promise this episode, it gets brighter and sunnier in a minute. I promise. What about variants in the meantime, as this ravages different countries? Yeah, variants are what keep me up at night, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that it's not something that we need to be you know, freaking out over. Variants are a very natural byproduct of viruses that you know, mutate over time. Uh, I think we talked about this last time, but viruses need a host body to replicate and they replicate as they as they replicate they mutate making little mistakes and that's you know after an accumulation of mistakes you have what we call as a variant and it's not surprising that we have 
multiple. It would not be surprising if we have more. But the best way to to kind of outsmart the variants is to prevent more bodies, more hosts from being infected to allow more replication to happen. So we do that by keeping risk low and we do that by getting vaccinated. Now, that said, we have really encouraging data to show that the vaccines that are currently available are really effective at reducing um, illness if you're infected with the variants. Uh, it's not, you know, we don't have all the data yet. We know that at least for the mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, uh, the most concerning variant right now, the Delta one, uh, seems, you know, those two vaccines seem to be really effective. We don't have data yet on Johnson & Johnson for the Delta variant, but we're trying as fast as we can to get that data. But honestly, the best thing you can do is to continue to keep your risk low and get vaccinated if you haven't already. Mm-hmm. Um, any... Any new vaccine data come out that would be perhaps soothing to vaccine-hesitant folks? I mean, there's been recent data that's been very encouraging on maternal health. Um, you know, recently they had data to show that there was no negative impact on the placenta from the vaccine, which I know a lot of people are still kind of very concerned over uh, very false claims about its negative impact on fertility. Um, mm-hmm. There have been, you know, hundreds of thousands of reports into vSAFE, which is CDC's data collection um, kind of survey thing. You could sign up for it after you get vaccinated, would they basically take, you know, some small data from you on how you're feeling, any symptoms, any adverse events. And so far, there haven't been any safety signals on that end when it comes to pregnancy, which is just really, really encouraging. Now, when it comes to mRNA technology, I think if anything, it is just proving how fascinating it is. And the fact that these manufacturers are working already on using this technology for research on HIV vaccines and research for RSV and research for other illnesses. And the RSV one is actually really interesting to me as a parent. I've got two young kids and I've actually had a kid who was hospitalized for a number of days from an RSV infection. And so it can't come soon enough, right? We have decades and decades of research that have prepared us for mRNA to kind of be the new showstopper in vaccine technology, and I am here for it. That's right. mRNA vaccine technology is the Beyonce album that she'd been working on for years that dropped at midnight on a Wednesday with no notice and will change our world for generations. Oh, y'all have kids? Oh, speaking of little ones too... When do all littles get jabs or what what's the status on that? Yeah. So, you know, they are working on a age de-escalation process. Uh, right now, the Pfizer vaccine is available for age 12 to 15. And we're going to see that very soon for Moderna as well. The next age group will be 9 to 12 um, and then 6 to 9 and then 2 months to 6 months and then 6 months to 2 years. Sorry, mm-hmm. two years to six, and then six months to two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and that will kind of happen incrementally as the data comes available. There have been some estimates, and again, I can kind of, kind of like uh, be a little cautiously optimistic that we initially said Q1, Q2 of next year, but I've heard Dr. Fauci and others kind of predict that it could be as soon as by the end of this year. So, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if most at least elementary adolescent kids are vaccinated by the fall school year time, or at least before the holidays. Um, For the youngest kiddos, I think that I'm probably still expecting it in early 2022. Mm, Okay. And until then, what? How are things going with herd immunity? Like, at at what point are things feeling safe to gather? I know that a lot of us have been like chasing COVID restrictions and saying, okay, what are we at now? This state versus this state. How is herd immunity working in terms of resuming in at least the U.S. some kind of like very air quotes normal life? 
Yeah. I feel like herd immunity kind of got a bad rap and it became this like fixation um, with folks when it came to kind of, it it was almost equated as an on off switch for the pandemic. Like once you reach it, it's over. And I think a better image to think about it is like a dimmer switch that you kind of are slowly making the virus like less and less bright in the community. But it's not a moment, right? It's not a moment that we can specifically predict. We think it's going to be when we're close to that 80% fully vaccinated range. And the reason why we say that is because we've never lived post-COVID, right? We can say that with confidence about diseases like measles, for instance. When measles vaccination coverage drops below 95%, we immediately start to see outbreaks. We see them in clusters of cases among kids in various parts of the country, in various parts of the world. So we know because we've lived post-measles vaccination campaigns uh, what it takes to kind of keep transmission extremely low or non-existent. We don't know that yet for COVID. And so because of that, I think that this obsession with a number is getting people really um, giving them either false hope or just kind of um, false expectations on what it's going to look like to be either managing COVID as a less disruptive, possibly endemic virus or a virus that maybe we do fully eliminate from our population. Um, I think that right now we're in the 50-ish percent range for people who are fully vaccinated in the U.S. That's not enough, right? We have a long way to go to get at least to 80%. Um, but again, herd immunity is not a moment in time, and it's also not something that we can actually claim just for one country because we live in a very global country, a global world, mm-hmm. and people are traveling. People are going to different places now, and countries are opening up, and businesses are resuming their travel. And so we have to think about this in a much, much bigger population. That's a great point. What will the summer bring? Will it be vaxxed and waxed, hot girl, hairy but alive, 2021? Masks off, thongs on, could be sandals or butt bonnets. It's none of my business. You know, my Vax Girl Summer is going to be kind of a lot of the same. We we do have travel planned. Um, We are planning on seeing some family who we haven't seen in a very long time over the summer. And we're planning on getting on a plane with the kiddos. Um, I kind of wanted to wait a little bit later in the year to do that, maybe giving them a chance to get vaccinated or see those numbers be a little bit higher. But thank God my kids are not at high risk of severe infection. They don't have any underlying conditions. It's not no risk. I mean, it, this this all kind of goes down to people's risk tolerance, right? Everybody's mm-hmm. risk tolerance is going to be very different based on your medical experience, any medical trauma, your kind of risk tolerance in in life in general. We're kind of taking it day by day. I don't think that there's one size fits all for how people can have a good summer. I am encouraging people to, you know, celebrate the fact that these vaccines do actually change your life in the sense that you are at a very low risk of getting or spreading the virus once you're fully vaccinated. So it's not like nothing changes. A lot of things can change. But I also recognize that I and many other people have little kids who are not eligible for vaccination yet. And a lot of people, too, have either kids who are medically fragile or people in their families or in their bubbles that are either immunocompromised on immunosuppressors, that it doesn't make it a very easy answer to just say, okay, you can do this and it's fine and it's safe. A lot of people want me to just say like, is it safe to do this? And I just can't answer those questions all the time. Mm-hmm. I think outdoors is awesome, especially if the weather is you know pleasant. Doing things outdoors, I'm like really fine even being in mixed company with people who are unvaccinated because I know that my risk is really, really low to mm-hmm. get it, um, especially outdoors. So I I kind of feel like it depends on that, you know, it depends on the circumstances. I don't love the idea of like hundreds and hundreds of people in a closed room 
for a long period of time with mixed mm-hmm. vaccination. But, you know, again, that's risk tolerance and mine's just not there yet. Right. What about masks? What do we think? I mean, mask fashion is going to be around for a while, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't think masks for individuals are going anywhere for a while. And I mean, it's June 14th here in California. June t- mm-hmm. Tomorrow is the day that we're supposed to see mask mandates kind of eliminated and not mm-hmm. no longer needing to be enforced in private places. Um, they will continue to be enforced in places of public transit and ma- major hubs like that and airports, et cetera. But, um, you know, I think that it's one of the kind of big public health takeaways from this pandemic that a lot of people have this muscle memory of, I don't feel comfortable in this space. I'm just going to put a mask on or I've got a tickle in my throat or I've got, a you know, a cough. And let's be honest, a lot of respiratory viruses are back with a vengeance right now because they've mm-hmm. just, you know, been waiting <laughs> around. And uh, I know that for myself, if I'm going to be traveling during flu season, I'm bringing masks with me just in case. And I think for a lot of people, that's going to be a takeaway from this pandemic that lasts for a lot, a lot longer. I think in places like airports and train stations and subways, et cetera, I think we'll probably see them enforced for a bit longer until we get higher rates of vaccination, until we see kind of really, really low transmission. There is a concern that the fall could bring another surge. Um, We hope that that's not the case, which is why we're trying to get as many people vaccinated now. But that said, um, I think that we're probably going to see a lot of places just in, you know, very soon in the near in the near future, say masks are optional or masks are not required at all. Okay, so that's a lot of body talk. And really, where would we be without our lungs and our blood vessels? But what about the bucket of neurons trying to make sense of all of this? Do you think that there has been psychologically like a mixed response to reopening? Absolutely. And I think we have to be very, very gentle with each other. I think the process of re-socializing ourselves, I mean, I'm seeing my kids be like really weird <laughs> as they're like starting to get re-socialized and be like, oh gosh, they haven't been around other kids and this is stressful. And, you know, adults are the same way, right? A lot of us have very different feelings about what it means to like hug again, what it means to be indoors at a restaurant again. And I think that we need to be patient and and kind and gentle with each other because we're not all going to arrive there at the same time. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, having those conversations with people that you love and people who are in, in your community to be like, hey, what are you comfortable with? Let's kind of pivot to make sure that we're all on the same boat because I don't think that it's fair to just be like, restaurants are open. Let's all go indoors right now when not everybody's there. Yeah, definitely. So there is some risk still, even if you're vaccinated, but Think your basket of biscuits. It's very rare. I mean, breakthrough infections are happening. They're happening at an extremely low rate, like 0.1% of vaccinated cases. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we need all that data to better prepare us for the next pandemic. And I mean the next pandemic. Like, this isn't the last one. And so it's it's kind of put me back into full gear of pandemic preparedness, pandemic surveillance, because... We've now lived it, you know, and it's no longer something that I fear will happen, you know, many, many years away. I'm not saying it's going to happen immediately, but, you know, it could. Um, And I'm just doing everything that I can with a number of incredibly gifted researchers to help us be way more prepared uh, to either prevent or not just not be as impacted by another 
virus again. Mm -hmm. I mean, I also want to just leave people on a note of optimism. Like we, this is so much better than it, than I expected, right? The the fact that it is the middle of June and we're having this conversation knowing that at least 50% of the population has been fully vaccinated, this is wonderful. I think we're going to have a much better summer. I think we're going to have a much better fall. And I'm really hopeful that our holidays this year are going to be filled with so much more joy. Mm Mm-hmm. And togetherness and casseroles, perhaps. <laughs> Bring back the casseroles. <laughs> Hot casserole winter. <laughs> now that we've covered the history and the present day medical ins and outs of this pandemic, let's talk emotions. Let's talk about your emotions. Let's talk about the future. So I hollered at my dear, dear friend who I met via ologies, Cole and Perry, who is a triple certified thanatologist a thanobotanist, a death worker. She is president of the historic Linden Grove Cemetery and Arboretum, and honestly, America's favorite grief counselor. So she took a break today from planting trees at the cemetery to run and record a message for you. And I love her so much. Hi, everyone. It's your favorite thanatologist, Colin Perry, still mohawked, but now with green hair. You see, I have changed a little. And so have you. So let's talk about that. There's a word I developed as part of my research that might help you as you venture through post-pandemic life. The word is shadow loss. Shadow loss. Ooh, let's get into it. So in modern society, we are not great at honoring losses that don't involve a dead body. But shadow losses are often the things that hugely impact us. A divorce might be a shadow loss. Or maybe you got ghosted as an adult and it left you reeling. Um, Or getting fired unexpectedly. Those can all be shadow losses. Now, two people might both have gotten fired unexpectedly, and one person was like, that's the best thing that ever happened to me, it was great, but the other person maybe didn't see it coming, and maybe that was a shadow loss for them. So those can all be, those are all examples of shadow losses. And if any of these things happened also against the backdrop of a pandemic, that is a double whammy. How many of you had to cancel a wedding, miss prom, Say a final goodbye through a YouTube live stream. Those can all be experienced as shadow losses. You or somebody you know might also be experiencing this. At the start of the pandemic, perhaps that was a shadow loss for you. You lost maybe your job or at least every semblance of what was your normal life. Gone. A shadow loss is a loss in life, not of life. And it's a word we use to define and claim an experience for ourselves. When a shadow loss happens, something dies, not someone. Shadow losses can accompany what I call big deaths, which are the loss of a human or an animal that we love. But it is up to you to decide if the pandemic has been a shadow loss for you or not. How do you know? Cole breaks it down. We grieve both big deaths and shadow losses. So if you have been a mess for months and months or dealing with like you wake up and you're like, oh my gosh, get it together. What is wrong with you? It might be grief. You might be grieving. And grief is not just an emotion. In fact, grief, the definition like in modern grief theory, grief is how we respond to loss. And the way you respond to loss is unique to you and unique to where you are in your life. 
our grief responses change as we get more practice with loss. And there are actually six categories of like symptoms in the grief response. You can have symptoms that are physical, behavioral, cognitive, emotional, social, and spiritual. When I'm grieving, I notice a physical symptom. I have the driest lips always when I am grieving. No chapstick can heal them. Um, Also, when I'm grieving, my stutter, I have a stutter that always shows up, and it always shows up on the letter D, which there's something there. Being a thanatologist, I say the word dead and death and dying a lot, but if I'm grieving, (laughs) it's really difficult. So what if you feel like you should be joyous, but you're feeling wonky? First off, whoo, boy howdy, you are not alone, friends. Now, things are, quote, going back to normal. And for some reason, you aren't happy about it or like you don't, you don't want the thing that you originally wanted so bad. And like basically you don't want to, quote, go back to normal. And that is because you've changed. All loss is change, whether it's a big death or a shadow loss. And at this point, we're so far into the pandemic, it's actually not possible to go back to where we were before. And in fact, I don't think we want to. My friends in the emergency management field, they're so brilliant because after a disaster, the goal is restoration, rebuilding, and reshaping, not returning to normal. It's not possible to go back because, well, I mean, normal died. Normal died. If you need a minute to scrawl that all over your binder or tattoo it on your face, go for it. Normal died this year. That is why we feel weird. Okay, so does she have any good news for us? I do have some good news. There are three things that each of us get to see kind of grow and develop within ourselves after a loss. These are learned skills. So after a disaster, a a trauma, a loss, what we see in people is the development of resiliency, empathy, and presence. Ask yourself, like, identify ways that you have been resilient this past year. How have you, like, fallen off the horse and then gotten back up? How have you done that? That is resiliency. These three qualities make us better people. And if we all are developing these three qualities more and more, the good news is that I think we will see a kinder, more caring society. That said, we all have that one family member who is like hell-bent against personal growth in all forms. I always try to have empathy for those folks um, because sometimes, like for some people, it's a lot safer to stay the same, even if you're unhappy, than to grow and change, than to be different than who you were. Your your life matters. Your life is precious. You have gone through stuff this year, and you've had to spend a lot of time with yourself in a way that you maybe haven't had to before. Maybe the last time you spent this much time alone was when you were a kid having to, like, occupy yourself all weekend. You might have felt really intense and even scary emotions over this past year and a half. Things like feeling just really scared or despair, desperate, lonely. And I want to encourage you that now is a good time to grow. Now that said, growth is not comfortable. But now is the time to stand up for yourself. Now is the time to take steps towards doing the things you've always wanted to do. Listen, 
Take advantage of the extra empathy that is out there. Reach out, look inward, and jump in. So at this very weird place in time and space and world history, it might feel like you have one eye in the future, like should you drag a keg to the beach for hot and hairy summer and celebrate being not dead, while then keeping the other eye on news reports and variant graphs? What can we do? The pandemic is still here, but it's also not, right? It's like mixed messaging everywhere. And the reality is, the pandemic is always going to be a part of your life moving forward. It'll always be a reference point, much like like when people are like, where were you on September 11th, 2001? Same thing. The pandemic is a loss that is interwoven into the stories of each generation, each family, each person. It's, it's a scar of sorts that we all will carry with us, always reminding us what we got through. So for such an impactful thing, I'm going to recommend that you have a, we won't call it a funeral, but let's call it a funerary ritual. Something died. Your life as you knew it is gone, whatever your shadow loss was for you. Um, humans have been having funerals, it's theorized, basically as long as we've been dying. And our brains really, really benefit from that ritual. So if you need it, let me be the one to give you permission to have a funeral for your shadow loss as well as your big deaths. You can do that on your own, by yourself, and it still counts. My favorite way to do this is to light like a 24-hour candle, uh, pick some plants from outside, whatever works, even weeds, and then place a few objects or pictures representing what you're having a funeral for next to the candle. It kind of like makes a little space of honor and it helps you validate your loss to yourself. It helps you stick up for yourself. Putting this like another way, seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. Another thing you can do is take stock of the things you did before the pandemic that helped you feel relaxed and the things you're doing now that help you feel relaxed. Not feeling relaxed? There's a term for our cloudy, murky brain problems. Metal doodle bugs. There's something called allostatic overload, which is when we basically have so much stress built up and not enough ways to like get it out that we end up getting sometimes very serious physical symptoms. Fatigue is probably the most common. So if you have had kind of unexplainable fatigue, you like now have to like sleep hard from 2 to 5 p.m. every day, maybe look into this allostatic overload thing. So before the pandemic, for a lot of people, things like going to the gym or trivia night at the pub every Thursday, those were actually stress relievers, like ways to, to get the stress out. And a lot of the things that were forms of stress relief shut down during the pandemic. And many of us didn't replace those forms of stress release with anything. So that's something you can do for yourself right now is take stock of that and say, OK, how am I getting the stress out of myself? Remember when we replaced that stress relief with bread? I do. And Cole offers a way to talk to yourself that is so helpful, and maybe you'll use it for the rest of your life and share it with a stranger on an airport shuttle. Who knows? Finally, everyone has had a different experience with the pandemic. Some of us had a lot of big deaths. Some had none. Some had more shadow loss than can be counted. And if you're feeling like you made it through the pandemic unscathed or virtually untouched, that doesn't mean you didn't live through a pandemic. And if you were scathed and were touched, 
that doesn't mean you did anything wrong or somehow deserved it. The pandemic is a shared loss held by all of us. And I want to encourage you to stop asking why questions and start asking what questions. When it comes to loss, typically we start by asking why. Why did this happen? Why me? Why my family? But the problem with why questions is that even though we might get an answer, it's not going to change anything. Why did my aunt die from COVID? Because there was a global pandemic and she got it and she died. That's why. That doesn't make me feel any better. What questions are (laughs) special magic grief medicine? What questions can help us get through the loss. Instead of asking why the pandemic, why someone died, start asking what. What am I going to do now that I'm restarting? In what way can I honor my loved one who died? What would feel good for me right now? What can I do to honor my loss? In what ways can I take better care of myself moving forward? And that's what I'll leave you with. With Ask what, not why. Take stock of how you're getting the stress out of your body. And allow yourself the opportunity to have a funeral for all that you've lost. Because all loss is change. And take good care of yourself and hydrate. And thank you, Allie, for having me back. Bye, everybody. (laughs) Oh, cool. Follow her everywhere. She's on Instagram at Imperi and at American Thanatologist. Links to her are in the show notes and on my website. Also, go find her October 2017 Thanatology episode, which has changed lives. Okay, on to another ologist who is a dear friend. You love him so. Many of you were really touched by the coronasodes featuring the words and the voice of New York City doctor Mike Natter who spent 2020 in the utter chaos of the front lines. And I wanted to check in with him, see how he's feeling, what he's expecting. Hello, Dr. Ward. I'm not a doctor. That's fine. He is. It's Dr. Mike Natter here. I've missed you. Uh, I hope you're well. So, you know, in terms of where we are right now in the pandemic, um, I'm just so optimistic. I'm feeling just so much better And things are really, truly starting to turn that corner and things are getting back to that pre-pandemic life. And truly and dearly, it's all thanks to the vaccine. So many people have gotten vaccinated to the point where we've finally gotten a handle on the spread and what's going on with COVID. It's allowed us to get back to our lives. And for me personally, I just, I can't tell you how much better I feel. I feel more like myself. I feel less emotional and sad and depressed. I I couldn't, I was not in a good way this past year. And after experiencing what I've experienced and seeing these horrible things. And for the first time in a long time, I just feel hopeful and I feel good. Um, And I really want to pay my respects to the people that developed the vaccines and worked hard to administer them. And um, all my healthcare, you know, brothers and sisters, it was, um, really rough. And it was those people that got me through it. And also people like you, Allie, spreading scientific evidence-based information when we really needed it most. So I, I thank you and I thank my healthcare family and those who developed the vaccine and everyone who's been vaccinated, well done. And those who aren't, um, please 
please consider it. And those that are on the fence that have questions, talk to your healthcare providers, talk to people in your family, people who have gotten the, the injection and understand, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there and it's important to educate yourself with credible information. I'm really, really optimistic and excited and um, just just really happy. So I love you guys. Can't wait to hug and kiss all my friends and you guys. And yeah, let's do it. So ask smart healthcare providers simple questions. If you're on the fence, consider the risks of not being vaccinated to both yourself and others. And to everyone out there listening to this, We've survived this far, and that's a lot. So whether you were pipetting things to develop the shots or administering oxygen to people on the brink or crunching data or just staying the fuck at home, thank you. And to everyone who still feels a little foggy, you're far from alone. You are very normal. And all of the ologists in this episode are incredible for being so flexible. Definitely look for Nikki and Greg's book, Until Proven Safe. The History and Future of Quarantine that is due out in July, but you can pre-order it now at the link in the show notes. Amazing book. Uh, The uncut interview will be up later this week on the Ologies Patreon. Follow Jessica Malati Rivera. She is awesome on Instagram, indispensable information. Dr. Mike Natter and Cole Imperi. Links to their accounts are in the show notes. More links will be up at aliward.com slash ologies slash quarantineology. We are at ologies on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Allie Ward with one L on both. Thank you to Aaron Talbert, who admins the Ologies Podcast Facebook group. Thank you to ologiesmerch.com merch girls, Bonnie Dutch and Shannon Faltus, who host the podcast. You are that. Thanks, Noel Dilworth, for scheduling and all kinds of help. Susan Hale does those quizzes that you love. Emily White of The Wordery makes transcripts. She's awesome. Kelly Dwyer designed AllieWard.com. Caleb Patton bleeps episodes. Soon to be spouse, Jarrett Sleeper helped get this entire episode all together like the champ and the hunk that he is. Archa. It's 1.09 in the morning. We're just getting started. We're just getting started. We're going to get this up. And of course, to Stephen Ray Morris, who has been an editor with us since the beginning. Uh, he hosts the podcast and see Jurassic Right. And Nick Thorburn wrote the theme music. His band Islands has a brand new album. Came out last week. It's called Islomania. Perfect for summer. Uh, if you stick around until the end of the episode, I tell you secret. This week's secret is that... Jarrett and I are getting married in three weeks, and we don't yet have a venue or a dress or a florist or a caterer or rings, but we have a lot of faith and optimism and vaccines. So whatever happens, it's going to be perfect. It's just been a busy spring. We're going to figure it out. Also, did I order a wedding band that has a glass eyeball in it that matches his to be determined if it'll be too weird to wear? I did. Okay, stay safe, hydrate, sunscreen. It's okay if conversations are awkward. We're all feeling it. Okay, bye-bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology, Wait here for a little while. See what happens.